Stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, visit www.3cr.org.au. Because we got the alternative energy right. making our free autonomy. And welcome to the Radioactive Show, produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne and heard nationally on the Community Radio Network. Hi, my name's Mara. This episode of the Radioactive Show was produced on the stolen land of the Wurundjeri people for 3CR Melbourne. On this show, we present the speech given by Noam Chomsky at a recent webinar organised by the Sydney Anti-Orcus Coalition, Resisting Orcus and War on China, a conversation with Noam Chomsky. Uh, Welcome everyone to this public meeting uh, organised by the Sydney Anti-Orcus Coalition. We're an alliance that came into being in the wake of last September's announcement of a new security partnership between Australia, the UK uh, and the US, featuring, of course, a plan to purchase nuclear submarines, uh, but which we see as part of a wider escalation of militarism uh, in Australia and uh, a drift towards war. Our coalition is united by the view that simply sitting back and waiting for good sense to prevail uh, is not enough at this point in time. We aim to tap into and mobilise the sentiment that exists in Australian society against warmongering and confrontation with China. Uh, And this meeting is a step in that uh, direction. My name is David Brophy. I'm a historian at the University of Sydney. I'm chairing the event today. Professor Noam Chomsky uh, is legendary for his generosity towards causes and activists worldwide. And we in the Sydney Anti-Orcus Coalition are immensely grateful to Professor Chomsky for sharing uh, today his thoughts uh, on Orcus and the state of the world. Uh, and I will now pass the floor to him. Well, as the Winter Olympics opened, Presidents Putin and Xi met in Beijing to form a new axis. The New York Times reported the principle announced by this reincarnation of Hitler and Mussolini. The report continued, I'll quote it, is that a powerful country should be able to impose its will within its declared sphere of influence. The country should even be able to topple topple a weaker nearby government without the world interfering, an idea that the U.S. has always abhorred, we are, to understand. Uh, China is the more dangerous of the new Axis forces on the march, and the United States is preparing to defend itself from the awesome uh, Chinese threat. Washington's current approach to the threat of China is called encirclement, uh, containment being out of date. Encirclement includes the formation of the Quad, supplementing AUKUS and the Anglosphere's Five Eyes, and far more extensive strategic military alliances confronting China that are now being implemented. China can counter with a troubled hinterland. The radical military imbalance in favor of the United States is being enhanced, as you know, by the latest AUKUS achievement, the plan to provide 
Australia with a fleet of nuclear submarines to extend already overwhelming US military dominance in the seas that are critical for Chinese commerce. Uh, current US national security strategy established by Trump, carried over by Biden, is designed to prevail in a war with China or Russia or both simultaneously. In order to achieve this objective, a military spending, which of course dwarfs all others, was greatly enhanced by Trump, now even more so by Biden, and Congress added some extras beyond Biden's expansion of it. If there's a better definition of insanity, it would be enlightening to hear it. In fact, we did hear it a couple of weeks ago on December 27th, perhaps to celebrate Christmas, Biden signed the, it's called the National Defense Authorization Act. It's described by military analyst Michael Clare, his words, it calls for an unbroken chain of US armed sentinel states stretching from Japan and South Korea in the Northern Pacific to Australia, the Philippines, Thailand, and Singapore in the South, along with India, all meant to encircle China. And Claire adds, ominously enough, Taiwan is included in the chain of armed sentinel states. Well, Claire's word, ominous, is well chosen. Uh, China, of course, regards Taiwan as part of China. So does the United States, formally at least, the official US One China policy recognizes Taiwan as part of China with a tacit agreement that no steps will be taken to forcefully change its status. President Trump and his Secretary of State Pompeo chipped away at that formula. It's now being driven to the brink. China has a choice, the choice of either succumbing or resisting and they're not going to succumb. The core of the US-China conflict is in fact just that. China refuses to be intimidated. It's not like Europe, which strongly objects to US policies, sanctions, so on, but adheres to them because it obeys. China doesn't. That's the conflict. The US-China conflict is real, but sharply asymmetrical. Its nature was captured eloquently, if inadvertently, by a headline in the New York Times a couple of days ago. Here's the headline, I'll quote it. As the United States pulls back from the Mideast, China leans in expanding its ties to Middle Eastern states with vast infrastructure investments 
and cooperation on technology and security. That's the New York Times headline. And unintentionally, the headline captures quite accurately what's happening all over the world. The US is withdrawing military forces that have battered the Mideast region for decades in traditional imperial style. In sharp contrast, China is expanding its influence with what's called soft power, investment, loans, technology, development programs. Of course, not just in the Mideast. The most extensive Chinese project is the huge Belt and Road Initiative that's taking shape within the framework of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, incorporates all the Central Asian states, India, Pakistan, Russia, now Iran, it's reaching to Turkey, clearly with an eye on Central Europe, may well include Afghanistan if it can survive its current catastrophe. The Belt and Road Initiative has offshoots in the Middle East, even including Israel. There are accompanying programs in Africa, and now even Latin America, over strenuous US objections. A few weeks ago, China announced that it's taking over the manufacturing facilities in Sao Paulo, Brazil, that Ford recently abandoned and intends to initiate large-scale electric vehicles production for Latin America to an area in which the United States is far ahead, in which China is far ahead, sorry. The United States has no way to counter these efforts. Bombs, missiles, special forces, special forces raids in rural communities just don't work. Actually, it's an old dilemma. 60 years ago in Vietnam, US counterinsurgency efforts were stymied by a problem that was despairingly recognized by US intelligence, by US province advisors. The problem was that the Vietnamese resistance, it's called the Viet Cong in the United States, were fighting a political war, a domain in which they were strong and the United States was weak. The United States was responding with a military war, the arena in which it is strong and the Viet Cong were weak. But that couldn't overcome the appeal of Viet Cong programs to the peasant population. That was the dilemma 60 years ago. The only way the Kennedy administration could react to the VC political war was by US Air Force bombing of rural areas, other program authorizing napalm, large scale crop and livestock destruction, other programs to drive peasants to virtual concentration camps where they could be protected 
in the terminology of the day, protected from the guerrillas who US intelligence knew perfectly well that they were supporting. Well, the consequences we know. Now, that's not unlike the dilemma posed when China leans into the global South by, quoting the Times again, by expanding its ties with vast infrastructure investments and cooperation on technology and security. That's one central element of the China threat that is eliciting such fears and anguish. The prevailing view in the United States for some years is that China is a rising superpower confronting the United States and may in fact has been widely predicted for many years, may be poised to surpass the United States and dominate world affairs. For what it's worth, I'm skeptical about this prediction unless the United States contributes to this end by persisting in its current course of self-destruction. There's a recent study by Harvard University's Belfer Center for International Affairs, which concludes further that the so-called Thucydides trap is likely to lead to a US-China war. That cannot happen. US-China war simply means game over. There are critical global issues on which the United States and China must cooperate. They will either work together or collapse together, bringing the world down with them. Thank you. You're listening to The Radioactive Show, broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. We're listening to the speech given by Noam Chomsky about resisting AUKUS and war on China, organised by the Sydney Anti-AUKUS Coalition. Uh, Thank you very much, Professor Chomsky, for getting us off to a start uh, with those comments. How do you appraise Australia's posture vis-à-vis AUKUS, US bases, the Quad, uh, and so on? Uh, Is it the case that Australia is being dragged into this uh, by the US, or is Australia itself uh, an imperialist champion, uh, albeit a a minor one? Well, the question kind of begs begs a question. It assumes that U.S. encirclement with Australian support is an effort to address China's human rights breaches. That's what's assumed. So we can start by asking, does that have any credibility? Well, there's an easy way to check. Take a look at U.S. and Australian concern for human rights breaches, where they can directly affect the consequences because they are complicit in the human rights breaches. Uh, So take US military spending, it's a good index. Take a look at it. Uh, In a category by itself, way above anyone else, are two countries, Israel and Egypt. With regard to Israel's human rights breaches, it's sufficient now to turn to the recent Uh, detailed studies by Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch on what they 
describe as the second apartheid state, first one, South Africa, having disappeared. You look down the rest of the list, you find the same thing. There's extensive documentation showing that US military aid is closely correlated with human rights abuses of the most severe kind, torture, massacre, aggression, so on. That's, and you look at other indices, it's the same. With regard to Australia, you can fill it in for yourselves. Take a look at Australia's immigrant policy, for example. It's a hideous scandal. I don't have to tell you. Uh, one of the times I visited Australia a couple of years ago was at the invitation of the East Timor Refugee Association. I was giving talks in Australia, talking about Australia's direct contribution to probably the worst slaughter relative to population since the Second World War. You may recall that it was Prime Minister Gareth Evans, the only, only leading figure in the world who officially recognized uh, Indonesia's conquest of what he called the Indonesian province of East Timor. That's while Australia was cooperating with Indonesia to try to rob East Timor of its sole resource, the oil of the Timor Sea. Uh, you can continue without my help on this. Uh, the United States and Australia have no concern for human rights. Repeat, no concern. That's evident from how they treat human rights violations in the areas where they can immediately deal with them because they are complicit and they have the power to end them. US and Australia, of course, are much concerned with human rights violations somewhere else where they can't do anything about them. That's cheap and easy. Uh, Chinese human rights violations are severe. They're within the limited range of Chinese reach. We don't help them by encircling China. Uh, we don't help end them by circling China, increasing provocations and so on. And nuclear submarines uh, in the South China Sea don't help people in uh, the Western provinces of China. Quite on the contrary, they build up powerful repressive forces partly in reaction to the provocative actions, and that of course leads to more repression within. That's a familiar dy dynamic. So yes, we should certainly protest human rights violations everywhere. And we should also follow a very elementary moral principle. So elementary that it's embarrassing to repeat it. You focus your efforts on where you can do most good. It's no use condemning the crimes of Genghis Khan. Can't do anything about it. Makes a lot of sense to condemn an act to end our own human rights violations, which are enormous and extreme. I think that's how we should deal with it. Who's really driving um, American foreign policy 
uh, today? Is it is it coming out of the White House and the advisors there, or is it more decentralized, driven by um, institutions like the Pentagon, the arms industry, uh, and, and so on? And then there's another possibly related question, which is how we situate this um, increasing bellicosity uh, in Western governments that we see to the the con- contemporaneous phenomena of the rise of uh, forms of far-right politics, um, what people sometimes refer to as right-wing populism, so on. Do, do you see a connection between this, this pressure for confrontation with China and those, those types of phenomena? Well, the driving force in U.S. foreign policy is a very familiar and traditional one, pretty much the same as the driving force in British foreign policy when they were ruling the waves. Uh, The goal is to ensure that the United States will be in command as far as possible. And that shows itself case by case, as it always has. Uh, So take the two main confrontations today, Ukraine, China. In both cases, there are possible, plausible, regional settlements. Take Ukraine. It's known on all sides what the plausible settlement is. Everyone knows that Ukraine is not going to join NATO, not in the imaginable future. The the plausible, feasible outcome for Ukraine is Austrian-style neutrality worked very well throughout the whole Cold War. Austria was able to establish whatever connections it wanted to the West, to the EU, anything it wanted, no constraints. Sole constraint is don't have US military forces and bases on your territory. Not having them is good for Austria, it's good for the world. That can be the case in Ukraine. Uh, With regard to the internal problems of Ukraine, There is a framework, so-called Minsk II, set up by the Normandy powers, France, Germany, uh, Ukraine, Russia. But notice something's missing from the Normandy powers, the United States. A regional settlement will take uh, Europe out of the framework of US power. Now, this is a long battle. It's gone on since the Second World War in U.S. foreign policy, a leading, you may recall the slogan about NATO, old slogan about NATO. Uh, The point of NATO is to keep Germany down, keep Russia out, and keep the United States in, which means in charge. That's called the Atlanticist vision. It's always been in conflict with another vision. Uh, Gorbachev's vision when the uh, Soviet Union was collapsing was what he called a European common home. That was a reincarnation of Charles de Gaulle's uh, call for Europe from the Atlantic to the Urals. Willy Brandt's Ostpolitik was a move in the same direction. Macron's 
negotiations today are bitterly attacked in the United States because they go in the same direction towards a European peaceful negotiated settlement, which has a major downside. U.S. is out. That won't do. So therefore, the U.S. has to try to block it, ensure that there's an Atlanticist solution that the United States runs. It's very similar in China. Take the confrontations in the South China Sea. They're real. Uh, China's violating international law with the islands in the sea. Uh, there's no freedom of navigation issue. That's a farce. But there are uh, conflicts and confrontations. They can and must be handled by regional groupings. That's where they belong. Easy to handle them regionally, but that has the same downside. The United States doesn't run it, and that can't be accepted. So that's the core of the conflict. It's an old story, goes far back, way back in imperial history. The U.S. isn't innovating anything. Uh, after the Second World War, the United States was so far in the lead that it could actually establish and run global order. Notice what happened with that. Uh, in the early years of the Cold War, the United Nations was very popular in the United States. Why? Because the other industrial powers had been devastated. Uh, the United States could give the orders. Uh, the UN was just a tool for US foreign policy. Did whatever the US said. Well, that was a passing phase. Uh, the industrial powers recovered. Worse still, decolonization came along with its call for self-determination. Bandung Conference, non-aligned conference, uh, the efforts in the UN to establish a, a international a economic order, a new economic order that would be geared to the needs of the former colonized countries instead of just robbing them, killing them. New information order, give the third world some voice in the international uh, information system. All of this was beaten back violently, including assassinations, overturning governments and so on. Can't have that. And there's an interesting outcome, which is discussed right on the front pages now. You go back to the Alaska summit meeting a couple months ago, the United States and China, very rancorous. It broke up over a basic issue. Uh, China insisted on what it calls the UN-based international order. U.S. opposes that. U.S. calls for what's called the rule-based international order. Footnote, the U.S. sets the rules. So we'll have a U.S.-based international order called rule-based. Well, in U.S. scholarship, uh, commentary, and so on, uh, you're supposed to be in favor of the rule-based order and opposed to the U.N.-based order because the U.N. is out of control. The U.S. is no, U.N. is no longer favored, no longer just does too many things the U.S. doesn't want. Uh, it even has 
policies like the UN Charter, which the US flatly rejects. Core principle of the US UN Charter is you cannot use the threat or use of force, except under conditions that are irrelevant. Every US president violates that. The United States isn't going to be bound by that. So we don't want a UN-based order. Well, all of these things are in the background. That's much more important than arms contractors and other things. Yes, they have a role, but fundamentally, it's just basic, fundamental imperial policy. Thanks to the Sydney Anti-Orcus Coalition for organising some fabulous speakers to address the importance of resisting Orcus and war on China at their recent webinar. We just heard Noam Chomsky's contribution, but other speakers included Dr Lisa Natividad from the US colony of Guam, Steve Murphy, the AMWU National Secretary, environmentalist Natalie Wosley, and Nick Dean from the Sydney Anti-Orcus Coalition. We'll post the link to the full webinar on our Facebook page and website. Thanks for listening to The Radioactive Show. You can download the podcast of this program at 3cr.org.au slash radioactive. If you'd like to get in contact, you can email us on radioactiveshow.3cr at gmail.com. The Radioactive Show was produced with the support of Friends of the Earth's Nuclear Free Collective for 3CR Melbourne on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Fitzroy, Victoria, and it's broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. Thanks for listening and tune in again next week for more news and views on nuclear, peace and energy issues.